All right, we have two guests today here on the program, and I'm excited to welcome our first guest. Our first guest is David Wilson. He is the author of The Visual Guide to Financial Markets. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. Dave, let's start by setting the background. Tell our audience a little bit about your professional background and your experience. Okay. I've been in business journalism in one way or another for more than three decades now. Started out at the Dow Jones in 1982. Um, worked my way up to being a stock market reporter in October 1987. Talk about timing. The stock market crashed right around that time, as I'm sure many of your listeners will recall. Three years later, moved over to Bloomberg News. It was just after the news organization put out its first story, literally, and been there ever since in various capacities, bureau chief, uh, training manager, columnist, you name it. Bloomberg that attracted you. I kind of got a sense that the future was going to be on the screen, online, and in essence, that's what the world has become at this point. Back then, they at least had enough of a subscriber base, enough terminals out there that you knew you didn't have to sell the news, you were adding something to an existing product. And when I got here, there were 11,000 terminals. Uh, now it's more like 311,000. So there's been quite a, a bit of growth over the 22 years and change that I've been with this company. So we're going to come back to your Bloomberg experience maybe a little bit later in the interview if we have time. But I really wanted you on the show in addition to your experience and your position with Bloomberg because you're a published author. And your latest book, as I mentioned in the open, Visual Guide to Financial Markets, I'd like to start with asking you, what was the inspiration for you to take the time and put the effort into writing this book? Well, there are a number of books in this series, the visual guides uh, from John Wiley, which uh, publishes Bloomberg Press. And they were really looking for a book that kind of gave the overview, in a sense, that, that covered a broad range of markets. And because I had been in charge of training worldwide for Bloomberg, I at least had some background to draw on. I taught journalists about the various financial markets in the past, and I was able to draw on that experience and some of the materials that I worked up in order to put together this book. And then beyond that, I mean, there are more than 40 charts in the book. I do chart of the day for Bloomberg News now and have for about the last five years. So it was sort of an extension of what I was doing in that position as well. So do you find, you must find, the, there's great value in charts. You do the chart of the day. I subscribe to chart of the day. But talk to our audience before we get into a little bit more about the content of the book. What is your view on charts as helping people to discern information from data? Well, a lot of times it, it just makes things much easier in order to be able to view performance over time, to view relationships, patterns. I mean, one of the reasons why the Bloomberg Terminal found an audience is that it provided the ability to manipulate data that you just didn't have before, and a lot of it was, was tied into the ability to set up uh, charts and graphs, and that's really been built out over time. And so what I do is really take the functionality that's in the Bloomberg Terminal and find ways to tell stories that hopefully provide some insight into what's happening in markets and the economy. So who do you, you, the book it came out last, last year, and from, from the time that it was released until now, sort of who's reading the book and how are they, who's the target audience and who has been gravitating to the book? I have the electronic version here on my Kindle, and th that has some additional features, which I really like in the, using the medium, if you will, to help educate in addition to the, what's in the printed book. 
basically anyone who has an interest in financial markets should be able to pick up the book and at least sort of get the basics of, of what it's trying to convey. And that's the beauty of not only the charts, but also uh, text boxes that we have throughout the book, definitions, key points, step-by-step uh, -step, uh, procedures for working with uh, data and markets. So the intent is really to provide something that you don't just pick up and read a bunch of text because, you know, as useful as that can be, I mean, sometimes it, it helps to have the visuals. And that's the whole intent of the series and the visual guide to financial markets, I think, benefits from having been done in this particular format. So from the time you decided to take the project on until you were able to hand it over to your editor for the final review, how long did the process take, Dave? Well, it was roughly nine months. I mean, I, I started uh, August of uh, 2011, and you know, the book uh, with, with the revisions was basically done by May of last year and then uh, came out in July. In fact, exactly nine months ago today was the publication date. Oh, look at that. Good fortune for us to have you as our guest today here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Let's talk a little bit about just a couple of the concepts in the book. You discuss the three R's of financial markets. Keep in mind that the audience that listens to this program are business owners and business executives of small and medium-sized companies. So can you present to them from your perspective and the content that you have in the book, describe the three R's and help them to understand that, the interrelationship. Right. What we think of the three R's is reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, in this book, it's returns, risk, and relative value. And let's face it, if you own a business or if you invest in a business, it's sort of the same equation in the sense that you're doing so because you expect the return on your money over time. You have to take a certain amount of risk in order to generate the return. And then, well, especially if you're considering different investments, different businesses perhaps, there's the issue of what's cheap, what's expensive, and what's fairly valued. And that's where relative value comes in. And what the book does is sort of take those concepts and apply them to each market, uh, giving a, a more specific look at what are the sort of returns you can expect, where do they come from, what are the specific kind of risks you have to take, and then from there, how do you judge relative value? And I find that the final R, the relative value, you, you, you deal with it well in the book and you, and you kind of reinforce it throughout the book. But it is, for me, it is one of the more challenging concepts just because of the concept that it is a relative value. It's not fixed. And so you're always having to kind of compare your investment decision against the other choices and they change on a daily basis. Please, exactly. Not, I mean, there are a whole lot of people sometimes. that will tell you that financial markets in general are not a great place to invest right now because if, if you put your money in the money market, you're basically earning nothing. If you invest in bonds, well, yields are relatively low. You run the risk that the, the value of your securities may fall if interest rates start going up. And, and stocks, we, we know that the, there's been a record-setting rally in the last four years. But if you're making a decision about what to do right now, the question is, what's your best bet? And that's where the relative value comparison comes in Well, as well. You can look at specific markets or you can look across markets to try and get a sense of, well, what is really cheap at this point? What's worth putting your money in? And, and you do have to look uh, not just inside of one type of investment, but like you said, across multiple investments. And then, as you say in your book, you need to look globally as well, especially as it re relates to you know government securities and investment 
markets. I mean, there are options beyond our borders that maybe sometimes the American investor doesn't consider, but I think uh, has been forced to, especially given the performance of our economy. Right. I mean, uh, the idea of do you go with developed markets or emerging markets? Do you, you do that in terms of equity you know, stocks or do you do that in terms of debt by their bonds? So, I mean, there are alternatives that just didn't exist several years ago because the markets just weren't big enough to really be able to put your money in. So now it is you know, a much broader uh, palette, you might say, uh, to paint on if you're an investor. I'm excited to have you on the program to talk about your book, and also I want to pick your brain after the commercial break, Dave, on the Fed's mandate, and you talk about it in your book, is to promote the goals of you know maximum employee employment, stable pricing, and moderate long-term interest rates. And I'm going to ask you after the commercial break if you could just discuss from your opinion and from your perspective, what is the impact or what impact should qualitative, quantitative easing have on investors' decisions about long-term investments? Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't go anywhere. We're talking with David Wilson, author of The Visual Guide to Financial Markets, and we'll be right back after these words from our commercial sponsors. Stuff to the right, more stuff to the left. Got enough stuff, but I can't take a step. So I smart stopped and took a minute to think. I need a little better spot, not under the sink. With smart stop, I leave the stress at the door. Cause it's the smart old way to store. Smart stop bucks the system. Your first month's rent is just a buck. Your next three months are half off. Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station. Goodbye clutter, hello floors. Smart stop, the smarter way to store. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. Welcome back to Critical Mass Coast to Coast. I am your host, Rick Franzi. I just want to thank all of you who are in our listening audience, both listening to the live version of our show today and those of you that have made our program a part of your busy business day by downloading one of the podcast versions from maybe Apple iTunes, Stitcher, one of the other podcasting services that we now use. The numbers suggested in the past 30 days were approximating about 7,000 downloads of the various programs that we've aired in the past month. That continues an upward trend, and we want to thank you all for making us a part of your learning experience. Talk about learning experience. We have Dave Wilson, who's the author of Visual Guide to Financial Markets, as our guest today. And before the break, as I was going to ask you to share a little bit from your perspective on the Fed's role relative to quantitative easing and how that might impact or affect an investor's decision about long-term investing. David, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, 
to put it in the framework of the book for starters, one of the risks you have to be concerned about that really cuts across markets is what I call policy risk. And it comes in the form of fiscal policy, the government's decisions on budgeting, something like the sequester that we're in now is an example of that. And then there's monetary policy. That's the Federal Reserve side of the equation, uh, where they're setting the cost of money, in essence, and you know, the quantitative easing that you mentioned, the bond buying is having an influence on the cost of money, and at least that's the intent. So the idea that the central banks out there with $85 billion a month of purchases of, of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, if you're thinking about putting your money in the bond market, we have to be mindful of that because, in essence, the Fed is a source of demand. It's a source that can go away if policy changes. Now, in terms of the, the benchmark interest rates that the Fed sets, that's another piece of the equation because in the money markets, we know we mentioned the near-zero interest rates earlier, and that's a function of the fact that the, the benchmark rate is set by the Fed is near zero and has been for a few years now. And then if you look at it, let's say from the stock market perspective, well, all the money that the Fed has created in the process of buying all these bonds has to go somewhere. So a lot of it, at least the people who are much closer to the market even than I am will tell you, it's made its way into stocks. So you know, when you look at the fact that we have uh, records on the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the Standard Poor's 500 or whatever, you have to be mindful, again, that there is a source of demand you know, coming from the central bank, uh, at least at its starting point, which may or may not last over time. And then you know, one more bit of the equation, I mean, what's going on in terms of the commodity markets? Because I do get into uh, what I call hard assets as well. When you figure that we have economic growth, it's been uh, fueled by what the Fed has done in terms of policy. Well, when you look at the value of gold, the way it's come down lately, you could argue it's a function of the fact that we have an economy that is indeed growing and that the Fed's policies are part of that. So if those policies shift, you have to be mindful of it. I know it's, it's a lot of uh, explanation there, but that sort of gives you the overview in terms of how the central bank can sort of influence what's happening in markets and, and the value of securities. And that's why I think a book like yours, Visual Guide to Financial Markets, is in, informative and instructional because I am a loyal listener to Bloomberg Radio. I get the pleasure of hearing you throughout the day when you come in and talk about specific stocks and activity that's going on in the market. It is never a simple story to retell what's going on based on the interrelationships. And then also, from my perspective, the individual who's reporting on it's sort of not biased, but their point of view, because the same set of data can be interpreted somewhat differently by different uh, uh, reporters who are giving you the uh, information. And so it's a pleasure to hear someone like you who can take a complex thing like investing and relate it in a way that the audience can understand. So thank you for doing that. No problem. The other question, a lot of people who are in who are listening to our radio show are owners of businesses. And frankly, in my, from my experience in working with them, they sort of overweight their investment portfolio based on the, the business that they own. You know, if they're going to put the money back into something, they choose to maybe reinvest it in themselves and in their business. And I, that's why I wanted to have you on the show to remind them that they need to look outside their own four walls for financial investments. But in your work at Bloomberg, do, do you see that as well, that sometimes business people tend to overweight their, their investment portfolio with the thing that's closest to them, whether it's their company stock or the company that they own or et cetera? 
Well, it, it's definitely something that, that a lot of people do, and it has to be a concern. Think about it. You know, Bloomberg, for example, is a, a closely held company, so I get my paycheck, and then I figure out what to do with it, among other things, uh, making investments. Now, if you end up, let's say, in a public company, and you decide that you want to buy some of their stock, well, maybe they give you a deal to do it. Uh, I had that experience uh, previously at Dow Jones before it was bought by, by News Corporation, took advantage of that. But fact is, then, in essence, the risk of being where you are increase because if the business doesn't go well, value of your shares go down, and then you might find yourself out on the street without a job. So that's the challenge in figuring out where to put your money. I mean, to really spread it out to the extent that you are protected regardless of what happens because you know, even if you think you have the greatest idea about where your business is going, where industry is going, where the economy is going, you might be off the mark. And if you are, you want to be in a position where you're not going to just find the value of whatever you own diminished beyond any sort of reasonable ability to make it back. So what it comes down to is just being smart enough to diversify at the end of the day, especially if you're spending a lot of time in a business. I mean, you're making quite an investment there of yourself. So you know, why compound that by putting money into a, a similar area, and then if things go bad, you know, they go bad and, and you get hurt worse than you might have otherwise. Thank you for that. You know, two more quick questions, and then um, we'll uh, end this part of the show. I really have enjoyed your uh, discussion. I, I can see from the engineer and others in the studio that there's a lot of heads nodding, and they appreciate the fact that you're on our radio program today. You know, the world of investing is much different today than when you started with Bloomberg or you started in this industry. And I guess I just like, I know you you don't have that crystal ball. Maybe you do in front of you right now in the, where you are. But what can we expect to see as far as the future goes around trends in investing? Yeah, that that is indeed quite the challenge to figure out. Uh, if anything, more opportunities, sort of more ways to invest your money. Think about something like the growth of exchange-traded funds in the past couple of decades. I mean, basically, from a standing start, it has become a substantial chunk of the stock market and also of other markets. I mean, to the extent that uh, you have bond ETFs and commodity ETFs and you name it, so perhaps you can expect more of that. I mean, when I put together the book, I was just trying to figure out how to sort of get my arms around everything that's out there. And that's why I kind of came up with the concept of direct investing and indirect investing, the idea that you could, in one form or another, put your money into a government by buying their debt or owning their currency. Uh, with companies, you have the option of stocks or bonds. And then the, the hard assets that I mentioned earlier, um, commodities and real estate especially. And then the indirect investments, the ones that are tied in in some other way, whether you're talking about derivatives, futures, options, swaps, you name it, that you know, are linked to the value of some other asset or an index perhaps, you know, where, where that value, that underlying value is going to dictate you know, to what extent how well you do. And then the idea of funds where it's somebody else making the decision. So there's the indirect element. And whether it's an index provider, if you're dealing with an index fund, or an actual money manager with an active fund. So that, that was really the idea that as things mushroom, how do you kind of get your head around what you're really looking at? And that, that sort of framework at least gave 
me some way to kind of put it all together. And I hope the people who read the book too. I think it's a great uh, way to view the the options because it is a dizzying array of choices and somewhat intimidating maybe for some people who choose not to. And not everybody is an active investor or even is investing for their future. And, and hopefully through books like yours and others, people will feel more comfortable to figure out how to protect their future by investing today. If someone would like to buy your book or learn more about it, how do you suggest they go about finding the book? Well, it's available online. Uh, it's available at bookstores. Uh, actually, there's a page on Facebook that's uh, dedicated to the book, and uh, you know, Visual Guide to Financial Markets will get you there, so you can like that. In fact, uh, there's a link to uh, a whole bunch of online bookstores on that page, so that's another possibility. And uh, my chart of the day, to some extent, is an extension of what's in the book. Yeah, and I put that out four days a week. And if anybody wants to sign up for that list, uh, just send me an email here at Bloomberg. The uh, address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. So it's an easy one to remember, dwilson at bloomberg.net. And I'll be happy to put you on the list and you can see what I'm doing. Because not everything I do shows up on our website, Bloomberg.com. They pick and choose what they want. There are other people doing charts. So the only way you can make sure that you see what I'm doing every Tuesday through Friday is to be on that list. So go ahead and sign up. Any other books in your future? Oh, I don't know. This was actually my first one, so uh, that was enough of a challenge as it, as it was. Uh, there have been things suggested, but I have no idea at this point whether uh, they're going to really come to anything. And uh, sort of going with this for now, we'll see how it works out. I thought you had co-authored a, a book before this one. Well, I mean, in a sense, but uh, there, there's a book out that you can buy from our editor-in-chief, Matt Winkler, called The Bloomberg Way, and we had published that in-house, really, since the beginning of Bloomberg News, and uh, I was involved when I was in charge of uh, global training. I, I helped out with that book and was listed as co-author at the time, but it's since moved on, and you know, it, it really is Matt Winkler's product at this point. Dave Wilson. I want to thank you so much for giving your time today here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Thanks for being a friend of our program and a part of our business community here at Critical Mass Radio Show. You're welcome. Happy to do what I can. Have a good day. You too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Dave Wilson, author of Visual Guide to Financial Markets, as well as on Bloomberg's properties, both radio, etc. I would encourage you to uh, tune into the programs. He's uh, quite an interesting and informative speaker. He can get a lot of information into you in a short amount of time, and hopefully that's what you feel that he did today here on our radio program. We're going to take our second commercial timeout here on Critical Mass Coast to Coast, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have our second guest with us. So let's take our commercial break, and we'll be right back. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. 
Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plans and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. The Orange County Business Journal has ranked Commerce National Bank the 26th fastest growing public company in Orange County, and they remain a Bauer Financial five-star institution. President and CEO Mark Simmons attributes the success to how well the bank treats its customers and employees. Commerce National Bank simply delivers personal service at a higher level than its competitors, while offering technology on par with the big banks. If your organization could use a new business bank, call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they will handle the rest. Mass Coast to Coast. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Our second guest today on the program is Mark Dupo, and he is chairman of the board at Education Work. Mark, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it very much. It's our pleasure to have you here today, sir. Let me ask you, let's get started and tell us a little bit about Education Works. Sure. Uh, we're a nonprofit uh, based in the Philadelphia area region. Uh, we cover 60 schools uh, with 16,000 children, a lot of the after-school programs, a lot of STEM, science and math, uh, robotics, and anti-bullying. Uh, we've been around since uh, 18 years now. And how did it get started? Got started by a gentleman, our uh, founder, uh, executive director today is Marty Friedman, and had gotten involved with education. He has 35-plus years in the education sandbox and uh, started developing these programs 18 years ago. And uh, today we're about $11 million uh, budget with over 100 employees. Wow, that's a significant organization. Thank you. And you're the chairman of the board? I am a board chair. I have uh, 18 people on the board uh, throughout the Philadelphia area. Uh, we usually meet four times a year, and uh, a lot of work is done in the what I call subcommittees, executive committee uh, meetings that we have. Let's talk about your role as the board chair and, and your view guiding of your guiding principle. Here on the radio program, we like to ask business leaders and nonprofit leaders of all the things you've learned in business, have you set on a kind of a core set of beliefs that are allowing you to kind of build the culture and lead education works into the future? Yes. Uh, my vision uh, when I started as board chair a year ago was diversification of funding. Today, a lot of our money, over 85%, come through government sources, both federal, state, and local. As you know, it's very, very challenging in today's economic client. So diversification, meaning trying to get money from uh, family 
uh, corporations, uh, you know, major businesses, and then also major donors. My second uh, vision was to deal with uh, marketing and PR. Uh, we are organization has been around 18 years. Uh, we do not really have done in the past any marketing or public relations. So we're really going to step up this year. We actually have hired a marketing and PR uh, company in the Philadelphia region. So how much of your business experience can you bring to bear as board chair? Uh, probably my 38-plus years. Uh, it's, as I said, last year we had a very difficult year in federal funding. We lost about $2.6 million last May. So we, from my business experience, able to cut expenses. Unfortunately, we had some layoffs, but structurally we're in good shape, and we were able to raise an additional million dollars. So where it looks like for our fiscal year, which ends June 30th, we're probably going to be at a, uh, at a neutral position which is uh, we were looking at uh, last year probably about a $100,000 deficit. Wow, that's um, good progress. So tell me a little bit about your, uh, 30, your 38 years in business, your business experience that predates being the board chair. What is it that sure. you did and what did you know? Uh, well, my dad was a retail pharmacist in Philadelphia, so I came from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, you know, a lot of sales and marketing background. Also, I've been involved with nonprofits uh, for the last 30 years, Big Brothers Big Sisters, Sunshine. So I think combination both of business, uh, Rick, and also uh, my experience in the nonprofit world made me, I, I feel, uh, and also the board, an ideal candidate for board chair. I understand that you've been a member of, of a couple different peer groups, as as you may be aware. Renaissance Executive Forums is an international peer group company. Critical Mass for Business here in Southern California is a peer group business. Can you explain from your perspective what was the value of being a part of a peer group? Sure. I, I think a part of the peer group is you know listening uh, with other folks, uh, working with other folks, uh, you know from their experiences what they need to solve uh, issues. I think the biggest thing that I bring to the table is board chair is a problem solver. Uh, I think, uh, and also working with other peer groups, you know, listening to their knowledge, even though it's not you know let's say in the educational you know again sandbox uh, you know i certainly can learn something and using best practices utilize that uh, in uh, in the running of education works so tell us about a current challenge facing your organization and what in addition to the revenue challenge which it sounds like you've gotten that handled sure. you know right. what what are you doing about it i think the biggest challenge is we have again the founder uh, and the executive director, uh, Mr. Friedman, who is 67 years old, and uh, you know uh, what is uh, his plan as far as what we call uh, you know transition or exit strategy. And the board uh, and executive uh, committee have been dealing with that over the past couple months. So again, what happens? And again, uh, both nonprofits and also uh, corporations uh, have to deal with this success in planning. Uh, so we're working on a contingency plan if, God forbid, something happens to Mr. Freeman tomorrow uh, and what's going to happen over the next couple of years. Because, again, we are a very large organization with a lot of, uh, a lot of employees. And, uh, and I think what I've said to Mr. Freeman is, you know, where are we going to be not only three to five years down the road with a lot of executives look at, where is education works going to be 25, 30 years? So that's, that's the plan strategically that we've been working on for the past uh, actually year. Friends of mine that are coaches and consultants for businesses that go through these types of transitions, and I th think it's no different for nonprofit organizations as well. When there's a change like that, that is a 
that's a dangerous, frankly, it's a dangerous time for the organization because uh, old habits have to change. We have to learn new ways. And, and sometimes it can cause the organization to take a step back. So as the board chair, you're kind of being, you're the steward at a very critical time in education works existence. Right. Yeah, it, it's, I, I think what, it, if I can say to any of the boards out there, you know, again, both, you know, for-profit and non-profit, I mean, this is a discussion that has to be put in place. So I have it in my, in my business. I have a succession plan right now. Uh, most of the folks I deal with in the corporate world have succession plan. Unfortunately, a lot of the non-profits do not run it as a really true business. So I think uh, as a board, as a non-profit board, you need to have these, uh, discussions. And, uh, they're difficult discussions. Again, I'm dealing with a founder, uh, executive director who's been doing this for 18 years, and all of a sudden I'm asking, you know, what is your plan? And uh, and what I call founder syndrome, which a lot of the boards will realize what I'm talking about, it's very difficult to give up. So, again, what I have done is uh, I've actually hired a, a coach uh, to work with Mr. Freeman over the coming year as we make the transition to a new executive director. That's a very smart thing to do, Mark, because sometimes that's what it takes. It takes some outside energy and perspective to help. You know, it, it, it's interesting to be on the board of a large nonprofit because you're going to term out at some point. I don't know what you're, how long you're allowed to be there, six years or whatever that whatever the is. But yet you have a very serious responsibility in those six years, even though you're sort of temporary, to leave a legacy. That's a, and as the board chair, it's even more critical for you during your couple-year term as board chair to make sure that you leave the organization in a better place than when you found it. And that is challenging because everybody knows you're not going to be there as long as the people who've been involved in the organization, who are employees in the organization, will be. How do you manage? I don't. First of all, do, do you see that perspective? Am, am I on point with you? And secondly, what are you doing about it as you lead this organization? Right. I, I think that's a really good perspective. I actually have a three-year term. I'm into my second year. Uh, I'm not sure if I could do six six years. It, again, it's been a very challenging year, Rick, with the uh, you know with the funding uh, issue and also the transition. But I think it's important. Uh, and again, talking about values and again, getting back to, uh, to folks that are in my position, I look at my values. One of the things my father and grandfather taught me was about employees. Uh, you know, the program obviously is very important. You know, the, the 16,000 children that we serve, but it's also we have a hundred plus employees uh, that are involved with our organization. So I think uh, as board chair and also as my board, they have a commitment because they're obviously making their livelihood through uh, the nonprofit. They are certainly not working for the money at, uh, at Education Works. They, they do it because they love it and they have the passion for the work. And that is a key lesson that private enterprise, that for-profit businesses can really understand that there are people in the nonprofit who donate, who maybe aren't even employees, but they're volunteers, etc., who give willingly of their time and effort and energies because they believe in the cause. And, and I think some really successful businesses have learned that if you speak to your why, to your mission, and to share that with uh, the community, the business community, you can actually create a kind of differentiated for-profit business by learning from non-profits. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I think for me, you know, personally, I'm passionate about the work that we do. And we just actually hired a brand new uh, director of development, and he was driven by the mission that we that we do. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate and blessed, uh, 
you know, uh, Rick, that uh, education I've had has been uh, has made me very successful in my in my private world, and I feel uh, the children that we serve should have the same opportunity as far as education. I think it's the basis for uh, the success for them in their early years, and obviously later on. So that's that's what we do. We put those those children in the position to have the opportunity, the same opportunity that you and I have in 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 our education. So let's look back at your business career, and I'd like you to think about a time where you learned a valuable business lesson, one that you're carrying with you today, but it came from an experience that at the time felt difficult, uncomfortable, possibly even painful. Do you have one of those experiences that you can share with our audience today? Sure. Uh, I, I, I do. I, I'm a big believer in uh, you know working with people and, and training them. And I had uh, started this new program in uh, one of the very large pharmaceutical companies, and there was a big backlash from it. Everyone didn't want to do it, and I felt uh, I thought it was important for us to do it. And uh, finally, I had everyone to buy into it. And I think the whole thing is I've learned patience. Uh, I, I think also I've learned to have realistic expectations. I think sometimes uh, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs like myself, have a tendency uh, to have uh, unreal, unrealistic expectations, but I, I think if you get the buy-in at the beginning and, and be patient, and I think it's just a matter with myself personally, uh, Rick, it's a matter of just maturity on my end. Yes, patience and entrepreneurs aren't always used in the same sentence, and maybe that's not an adjective that's used to describe uh, many entrepreneurs, but uh, especially when you build an organization that has scale, you have to learn to work through people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we, uh, our vision uh, for Education Works is actually uh, going from a $10, $11 million organization to an $18, $19 million uh, we have only really taken it regionally in the Philadelphia area, uh, Camden, New Jersey, uh, in Trenton, and in another suburb of Chester. Uh, we haven't really touched any of uh, the other areas, the Allentowns, and even uh, you know, Mr. Freeman and I, again, the founder, have talked about taking this nationwide, even to a state like California. Wow. Well, that would be great. And there's a need, certainly, and uh, that that is what... Is something that's interesting to me. I just came from an earlier meeting today with an organization that supports nonprofits in Orange County. And Orange County, with a population of about 3 million people, has over 3,000 different nonprofits serving the various needs in the community. It is um, amazing to me how much, <clears throat> how many people need help and how many different types of organizations have come up to help solve that problem. And it's very inspiring as well. And I'm glad that uh, our producer and the Renaissance Executive Forum's business owner in your area, Mr. Ken Wax, was able to bring you to our attention, Mark. If someone would like to learn more about your organization, how do they do that online? Sure. Uh, Obviously, we have a website, uh, www.educationworks.org. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being a friend of the program. Thank you for being a part of our community. Continue the good work both on a nonprofit and a for-profit in your community and look forward to speaking with you in the future, Mark. Okay, Rick. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it very much. That's going to wrap up another episode of Mass Coast to Coast here on Internet Radio Station, octalkradio.net, who is this close, you can't see my fingers, ladies and gentlemen, but they're not that far apart, who I hear are this close to moving into our state-of-the-art, brand-new studios here in Southern California. 
and I can't wait. At TechSpace. At TechSpace. you got to put the plug in for TechSpace, our TechSpace partners. That's the engineer of the radio program, Paul Roberts, who is saying that we are the studio will be in the belly of the incubator company, TechSpace, who has offices throughout Southern California and New York and Florida, if I remember correctly. Yes, they do, all over the country. So we want to thank them for their partnership with octalkradio.net. And uh, I don't think the audio quality or the show quality will uh, change much, except that we'll feel better about broadcasting from a brand-new state-of-the-art studio. Until the next time, oh, I, how can I not thank the other people? I mentioned Paul Roberts, our engineer, but Rachel Franzi is our executive producer. Kelly Faltis is our marketing communications manager. Kathleen Shepard is our guest coordinator. I'm your host, Rick Franzi. I'd like to thank Ken Wax again of Renaissance Executive Forums for bringing us one of our two guests today. And I'd like to thank Dave Wilson, author of Visual Guide to Financial Markets, for being on the program. Until the next time we have a chance to talk... Here's hoping that all of your decisions will move your business in a positive direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass, coast to coast. Right here on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.